Hello, welcome to Defining Rules, a podcast about jobs you may have never heard of. I'm your host, Kate Barrett. Let's explore the possibilities of what's out there so that we can find our perfect role. This week, we have Meltem on the podcast, who is a security engineer for a robotics company. Now, this episode is a really, really interesting one because it shows a side of computer engineering that is really on the developing end of some of the really cool technology that's coming out. We not only dive into some of the technicalities of Meltem's current role, but we also talk about some of the cultural adjustments that she's made from her home country of Turkey to adjusting to school and work culture in the United States. We talk about her PhD program and what that looked like for her. And we also just get into a lot of you know the hard versus soft skills and the communication that is hand in hand with the technical knowledge that she uses in her current role. I think you're going to enjoy this one. Let's jump right into the episode. Mel Tem, thank you for joining me on the podcast today. I'm very excited to speak with you. Oh, me too. First question, what is your official job title? So um, I'm a security engineer. I work on um, product security on a, in a robotics company. And that's pretty much what I do. Yeah. Awesome. How would you define your role? And this can be, how does your role fit into the company or the project as a whole? So what we do is, um, what a security engineer does is they, especially if they are working with a product, they look at the product and they try to figure out the spots that may be a little bit vulnerable, Mm -hmm. that may be open to the attackers and try to, fix those places that that could have, you know, really bad, really significant impacts on for the company. Mm-hmm. So what they do is, what we do is kind of try to analyze it, analyze the product, figure out the problems, especially around the security, mm-hmm. and solve the problems around them. Awesome. Would you tell us about the project that you're currently working on? It is very, very fascinating. Yeah, so <laughs> I, I was very fascinated with it too when I first started. Actually, it's been um, about three years now since I started working on that company. Okay. So um, what we do is we develop robots for um, surgeries. And it's kind of interesting. It's kind of like a three pieces that mm-hmm. sits inside of the surgery room. Uh, at one of the pieces that surgeon sits and controls the robot. It's a method for laparoscopic surgeries. So um, surgeon controls the robot. They can look into, you know, they, they use a camera to see what's happening. And then they just, you know, control these instruments to be able to finish and do the surgery that's required for that patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so what makes it special is that the... You know, in the in the future, one day, uh, it may be possible for the ro- for the patient to be in another room, not room, in another place, while mm-hmm. the surgeon is 
is just living in maybe even another country and still wow. being able to do the surgery. It's, um, we're not there yet, yeah. but we will be there pretty soon. So I believe, so that's what I work on. And the coming to the security, as I mentioned before, that's our product and we are trying to secure the, uh, secure our product because medical area has been really interesting for the attackers so far. You know, mm. it's, there's always um, some kind of gain you can make out of the very, you know, um, this crucial elements that, that happens to be in that environment where people get treated, you know. Yeah. Um, so that's what we work on now. Um, especially what I look at is the, the instruments so that, you know, someone cannot just come in and sell you like a third party instrument, you know, sell to the hospital, a third party instrument, whatnot. So yeah, that's what I work on. So you work on that last part there, the the even the attachments or some of the instruments that go with the robotics, you help determine what is verified in an actual piece versus what's not very compatible. Is I might am I understanding that correctly? Yeah, there is a compatibility issue too. But what I look at is actually mostly is it uh, is it produced by the company okay. or someone else is trying to fool or yeah you know the hospital is trying to get it for a cheaper price or whatnot you know interesting okay so from my understanding you sent me a really cool video to show a demonstration of this robot that is controlled by the surgeon it almost seems like it's a bit of a video game that the that the surgeon gets to play that then is actually working on the human. Yeah, I know. It's, a, it's definitely feels that way. Um, so we have this simulator for it too. So mm-hmm. you can, you know, we we give trainings to the um, to the surgeons, etc. So you have to have a lot of training before you start operating on that normal person, actual person. Oh, wow. Especially those simulators actually feels definitely like a game. You know, I've, I've actually sit down and just like play it around and try wow. to put, I don't know, uh, some uh, circles on top of some cones, whatnot with that, with those joysticks. Yeah. It, was, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I mean, I guess it feels a little bit different to a um, trained surgeon. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they feel about it. You know, I, I have heard really good things about that. People, you know, like surgeons themselves being really comfortable with them and feeling so intuitive about it. But um, since I'm a surgeon myself, I, I just, to me, just like you, it feels like a yeah. game. Yeah. <laughs> just playing no. around. I think the potential for it is what's really exciting. It's that they could be anywhere in the world and do these remote surgeries, which what an amazing tool to have that you can have the top surgeons from all over the world that can work with people anywhere and it's not limited by location exactly yeah it's it's very sci-fi to me uh, yeah you know, pretty crazy that's very true so how does software security work what kinds of things are you doing to protect the system and i am someone that knows very little about technology. And so 
oversimplify everything when you explain how things work and what it is that you do to protect the system. Okay. It is it's something like this. So you, put, you put together a system, right? The software is kind of like a system, kind of like something you define the limits for. Okay. You are thinking that this, um, say, your, say your phone, right? I mean, your phone is running some software, right? When you're designing it, you think of some limitations. You know, it's going to be, it's going to have such and such processing power. Mm-hmm. It's going to have some user. Maybe it will have some amount of data that mm-hmm. I, will, I will reserve to do job A, etc. So you kind of uh, put together this whole system of things in your software. Usually, what software security does is trying to find the, the, the pieces that may be attacked, that may mm. be very interesting to the outside people. So I mentioned when you are designing the system, you think about the limits. Mm-hmm. You are thinking that, okay, a user... I'm just making this up, but let's say your, you say in your phone, a user may have hundreds or hundred thousand applications, and that's mm-hmm. it. Maybe they cannot have more than that, and that's what you, you know, that's that's the limitations you put in. But if someone comes in and tries to do one more application, tries to install one more application, do you have the tools to stop that? Mm. And if they do, what happens? Okay. Is it going to break something else? Is it going to maybe this next application, is it going to overwrite another one? Wow. So uh, these are the things you look at. Yeah. It's, it's a pretty tedious job. It's actually, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's actually more, um, it's best if you are the engineer, like a software engineer who can keep security in their mind and design things accordingly, you know, mm-hmm. thinking that, oh, okay, you know, I ha- I can only support 100,000 apps. So I have mm-hmm. to put some kind of a check in my software to not to exceed that or something like that mm-hmm. and make that check really robust. That's good. Like that's the best scenario, mm-hmm. but usually this doesn't happen. So sometimes yeah. people, you know, focus on one thing and don't want to think about the other stuff or they don't know enough to t- think about the other stuff then there the security engineers come in and try to check for these interesting pieces, these this, uh, vulnerable pieces in your software. Wow. And then they try to fix it. That's just a lot of trial and error, it sounds like, because there's, there's only so many things that you can foresee at the beginning. And then, yeah, your job is just to look for problems and then to solve them. Exactly. Yes. And it gets, I mean, there are tools to, you know, look for these kind of things like automatically. So that's good. You know, people design those tools and you usually utilize those tools, but um, tools are good enough at a, at a certain point. Sometimes there is such a you know obvious problem. Mm. Tool never catches it because it's not in a systematic way written in the code, but the methodology or methodology is incorrect. Maybe, you know, like, mm. For example, you are leaving your house and without locking your door and you just close your windows and you think that, okay, you know, I'm safe and secure, but you didn't you know, lock the door at all. Yeah. If there was something checking the windows, it will tell you that you are secure, but you left the door open, something like that. I mean, it's a yeah. pretty basic example, but that's 
that's the feeling of it. And the more you do it, you get to kind of start thinking like this is um, around the security, around this type of um, problems. I guess you start, yeah. I don't want to say exactly that, but you start to think kind of like an attacker. You just wow. kind of think that, okay, you know what? What happens if I do that? Mm-hmm. Huh. I wonder what happens if, you know, it tells me to, you know, do not exceed some number of characters when I'm putting the name into my, uh, to name a file, say. Mm-hmm. What happens if I exceed that? Kind of, you know, like you want to uh, touch the limits, try it out. It's, yeah, it's, I think you get that, that thinking after a while. Wow. Are there certain areas that tend to be attacked more than others? Like, are there just certain spots that are just more vulnerable or that are more attractive to hackers? Um, yeah, there are a couple of things, actually. The very first thing, I guess, it's pretty basic, but I think uh, being connected to outside mm-hmm. world makes you vulnerable, of course, like your computer, your phone, your, you know, the, the item that runs the software. Mm-hmm. If it never get connected to outside, it would be the safest Yeah, that it is. But of course, being connected. So that's that's their first one. And um, if you are working, like, if you don't have your software as like a, a like a very up to date, then you get attacked more often because yeah. people try to kind of like as an attacker, you try to attack anybody. Like mm-hmm. it, it depends on your motivation. If you're just like a random, you know, guy trying to just attack whoever, then you would just look for those uh, known vulnerabilities that's already inside of the software. And if somebody is running that software. Uh, operating system for example you know there's a say there's a bug in windows and then you are running that version of the windows people will just uh, use that vulnerability to do something harmful to you however the i think the most uh advanced uh, way of attacking is i think uh, when you have something extremely valuable um Mm -hmm. that's when we hear about this like you know Russian attackers, you know, attack this um, gas pipeline or nuclear yes. reactor or something like that. So um, those are the the asset there is extremely valuable. So mm. that's why they don't just try to find out like this just um, out there vulnerability. They are trying every single thing that they can do. So that attacker doesn't really like try to uh, attack everybody. They have a mm-hmm. one uh, target and then they just try, yeah. try and try and try on those. Um, yeah. And then there's like um, medical devices, another, another uh, class of the things that can be attacked. I mean, mm. I guess like, I think what makes it, there is the for fun part, you know, for fun and kind of like fame part um of the attacking that's you know some people get uh, excited about that and there is also there is actually the money part of it and that's maybe the more serious attackers i would say that they are not you know looking for fame but they are looking for some uh money out of the whole business and they are like uh trying for more i guess i answered your question you're saying like what is what is the common thing i think it's 
you know, if your software is old, if it has vulnerabilities, it's very uh, attractive to them. Or if you are doing something really, really significant, really, really valuable, yeah. then you are like a, you know, perfect target for them. Wow. For the situation where hackers get into the system through being connected, is there a way just to be the gatekeeper to keep them out? Or do you have to find deeper solutions that they could access once, you know, once they get in through your internet connection or something, is it a quick fix of this is how we keep them out? Or is, is it more layered than that? Usually, I mean, it depends on what kind of a user you are. If you are just a regular home user, just mm-hmm. recently the, uh, the, the operating systems like Windows, Mac, Linux, whatever, those are pretty good at uh, catching any kind of bugs and, uh, mm-hmm. you know, catching malware. So as a regular user, you won't have problems usually. Mm-hmm. Um as long as you are not triggering it, you know, by yourself, like if you are opening up suspicious looking email and just click on links and stuff, then you are, yeah, (laughs) you actually, maybe you are the easiest target for that. But if you're not doing that, um, mostly your operating system would catch many Mm. of the, you know, like random attacks that that's coming to your way. Previously, we had a lot of antivirus program programs, and then that antivirus software that had, you know, that has been doing this job. But recently, I think the operating systems are, you know, doing a pretty good job. So you don't need an extra layer of antivirus. That's great to hear. That's great yeah, to hear because yeah. I, I'm one that like. I'm not quite sure what I need. It's just like, what do I need? Just put it on there. I want it ready to go. So I don't have to guess about things. So I'm glad that I'm not extremely vulnerable by just having whatever Mac has on it. That's true. Yeah. I mean, that's what they want you to do, actually. You know, like they want to keep you secure, but they don't want you to work for it. Of course, nobody does like, yeah, um, as a user. So I think like, the right thing to do is to keep your software up to date Hmm. and you should be good to go usually, usually. Awesome. Would you take us through some of your previous positions and your background, the education and training and everything that you've done that has given you the knowledge to work on these sophisticated projects? Okay. Let's see. I am, I am actually Turkish. I am Mm -hmm. from Turkey. So I studied there college and I my major was um, computer engineering mm-hmm. it's very close to computer science here and afterwards I uh, came to US to do um, PhD and after the P uh, during my PhD you know I did I did start to lean towards the security problems and things mm. and yeah and then my PhD took a long time. <laughs> yeah. I think it took about six years or something. So um, after the PhD, I um, my PhD was again in computer science. So after the PhD, I joined Intel and worked there for four or five years. Mm-hmm. Four years, yeah. Worked there for four years. I, what I was doing there is mostly like research. So I did, you know, research around the 
I'm trying to <laughs> not yeah. remember it. I'm trying to put it together. Okay, so uh, I did some research around again security, mostly around the processor mm. security, and you know what, how we can provide some methods to the software so that they can do it faster, more efficient, more secure. Wow. Um, yeah, I did mostly research there because I was in the labs, and then I joined this uh, this current company. Then you asked me this, this, the training that you need to do and in order to work on these kind of problems. I mean, I guess this was my path, but it yeah. doesn't have to be, you know, like everybody's path. Some, many people start working right after college. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's a really, you know, uh, really impressive thing to do. I think I didn't feel ready to, to really go into workforce, I guess. Yeah. At that time, it didn't feel like I'm ready to face the real world. I just wanted to keep studying, you know, doing the exams and the homeworks and yeah. <laughs> being happy at school. But <laughs> um, yeah, it's usually uh, like uh, some people just want to just get in and start working and doing things. So I think it's I think it's uh, around the same time you come into the same spot. You know, people who start working at the same time right after college mm-hmm. would get the experience of like hands-on experience of the, being in the workforce uh, while you are just getting, uh, you know, kind of like a uh, scientific way of knowledge or more on the theory side. Yeah. And both of them counts. Like uh, when the, the employer is hiring you, they are looking at both of them. Like it's, it's important to some some type of jobs they require people with a more research background while some of them require people with a actually hands-on you know experience yeah. for security i think it's uh sometimes people are more successful when they have that like security like attacker thinking and that passion mm. um not everybody's like that it's a, i mean i didn't have it I recently got it a little bit more since I started working on the products, like an actual product. But um, some people just like to break things and wonder, like even as a kid, like you just wonder like how it's working and mm. how can I break it? You know, like you take the remote control and you just kind of randomly put, push buttons and try to find out what happens to it, you know. Mm. Um, so those are the people who would be much more successful especially even without some kind of like uh theoretical training you you know sometimes right after college they may be better to work on it immediately you know right plus you were dealing with cultural transition so that had to be a really big factor (laughs) of you had time to get used to the language and the culture and everything while you transitioned knowing that you wanted to work over here for a little bit doing the extra schooling and training was probably a really good easing into america uh that's very true yeah i'm i'm glad you brought that up yes <laughs> that's i don't think i would be able to just like jump in here and start working that's that would be pretty hard for me but yeah i'm glad i, I think that I think my PhD took a little bit long time also because of the, the that switch from, yeah. you know, where I lived. I just, I was going to this new place that I had 
no friends, no family whatsoever. So getting yeah. into that and I've, I studied in upstate New York. I mean, not to, you know, not to complain about it, but it was pretty cold. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so like, uh, you know, it was kind of, a, sometimes it was depressing and sometimes it was okay. So it's, it's a pretty, I mean, um, I guess like doing PhD, doing grad school is on itself. It's, it's pretty, um, you know, challenging thing because like I mentioned, someone, some of, some of your friends, they, sh- they would be already starting their jobs and they will be making much more you know money than you do and they will have much more comfortable lives while we are trying to survive yeah. uh, with roommates and stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. and trying to get through with a minimum wage um, they will be you know in a much better situation and you kind of need to uh, make your peace with that and I don't yeah. know it's being a student as a grown-up is pretty interesting yeah so, I I haven't done you know, a master's or a PhD. I've just done, you know, undergrad. So I, that's a really interesting take on the difference of being in school when there's a mix of life situations, because you do have people that get their undergrad, get some work experience, and then go back to class. I imagine that changes the tone of a lot of courses as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's very true. I mean, um, you kind of, I mean, in my opinion, in my experience, Mm -hmm. it was pretty interesting to see people with, uh, for example, people with children to be at school, like they're just talking about their daughters and sons and doing this and that. I'm like, what? (laughs) I have no idea what you're talking about. It's and then it's uh, and then people who are working coming back and you're like, what well, what are you doing here? And they being so worried about the exam and getting excited about the exams and it it was so interesting. They're asking the teacher like questions like, is this going to be on the exam? They're like, what are you doing here? <laughs> it's such a weird thing. I don't know. It's not. I don't want to sound in any kind of judgmental. It was just kind right. of like being surprised. Of, yeah, like people making these different life decisions and sometimes you just see someone else doing another decision than yours it just it just surprises you you're like oh wow how do you you know like yeah. i'm actually kind of uh impressed by your podcast that actually kind of you are doing that right now so uh you know how do you <laughs> like how do you pick another road than i did it's, yeah it's, uh, quite interesting to see Yeah, that's why I enjoy these interviews so much is to hear such different stories. And there's so many ways that people go. I I personally just find it really fun and interesting. So I'm glad you agree. (laughs) What was working at Intel like? Because that is the chapter where I met you. And I, I remember you saying there were you had coworkers from all over the world and it was such a unique mixed culture. Do you have any reflections or thoughts on that experience and working with such different people on a really cool, well-known product? Oh yeah. Um, I remember. Okay. That was, that was interesting because it was my 
very first time when I started like working at an actual job. Yeah. Uh, also, you know, it's not just like, you know, working at Intel, but also like working ever, <laughs> very yeah. first time. So um, we, uh, again, I remember like having co-workers is very different than having just friends and love mates because co-worker is a different thing it's again there is the age difference the the experience difference and that like yeah during phd during grad school there is some gap yes but when you go to work the gap is oh my god amazing like yeah you can have somebody who is about to you know he's about to retire and you can have someone just just joined and you have someone else who lived in i don't know whatever some uh you know, took some time off and did, I remember that one person took some time off, went to some kind of like a uh, exotic place and then just fixed people's computers there just wow. to make money and make it today. Yeah. And then, and you just like hang out, you know, go to the bars and do whatever, you know, that just lives his life or something like that. And then uh-huh. came back and start, you know, working at Intel again so like the the experience of people around you was pretty interesting and actually that kind of um that kind of gets reflected in the work as well sometimes you can see that people's like if somebody has seen the problem the similar problem many 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 times their take on it is very different than a person who is seeing it for for the very first time yeah. And sometimes it's much better to follow the person who sees it for the first time. They they may have a fresh opinion on it. They may be, for example, they may be reading the specifications. The the they may be gathering the information in a very mo- much disciplined manner mm-hmm. than the person who who thinks that uh, I know it already. You know, wow. and sometimes they miss the the small details. So um, I'm trying to find, come up with, like, come up and find out, find one of my uh, experiences or some kind of uh, story from the, those days. But I, I remember being really uh, working with a really angry person, mm. uh, <laughs> and I remember complaining about him to you a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was that was a challenge, really. Um, uh, so, and that was also another like kind of a challenge that I challenge. I cannot come up with another word. Mm-hmm. Challenge is kind of like the right word for it because you know there's this person you are talking, but he just gets angry at you, mm-hmm. like or or if you say something incorrectly, or if you spend a little bit more time that than you are supposed to spend on that topic or whatever, and then. But then you can't see that that person doesn't mean bad. Like the, the intention is okay. They, they are fine, but they are just, they cannot show it in another way. They're just getting angry. And then trying to make it through um, and working with that person was like kind of one of the teachings that I got out of uh, Intel, I would yeah. say. Like, I mean, you know, like there is of course technical stuff that I learned, blah blah blah. But that that's one part of the things. But I think uh, being able to 
work with people who seem to be hard to work with mm. was also another, you know, uh, take, take that I got from Intel because, um, because when I was leaving, actually, I talked to that person and I, and we were like, we were in the best terms at mm. that point, not because I'm leaving, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but he was just like, so happy that we worked together. Mm. And then we had a, we had a really good time, you know, at the end when we look back. Yeah. So yeah, there was, there was interesting people. There were really interesting people that I <laughs> worked with. I think there was a person, um, there, I mean, we had, you know, people from India, we had people from, um, of course, US and then Australia, and that was me. And um, there was a person from Peru. So mm. it was quite, <laughs> quite a diverse environment that I, you know, the, the team that I worked with there. Yeah. I studied intercultural communications for my undergrad. And that to me, you just saying that brings up so much from what I studied of ways of relating to time or ways of communicating and, you know, work styles are so cultural. So I imagine that adjustment period and learning how to, to function as a team took a little bit of time to just make sure that everybody felt comfortable and things operated smoothly. Oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, um, I did these trips. I, I forgot about the Israel people. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I took these trips and I was, I would come back shocked, like, Oh my God, these guys are always so, you know, negative. I don't understand why are they like that? And I remember actually talking to you and you're just telling me these things and, like yeah. okay, it's it's a different culture. People just you know are a little bit differently educated and and raised. You will learn to respect. Yeah, <laughs> I remember doing this with you. Yeah, you will learn to respect other people's you know behaviors a little bit more. Uh, so yeah, that was a, that was a really good learning that I uh, that I experienced. Yeah, and, I mean, uh, you kind of helped me through that. I remember. Oh, that's wonderful. <laughs> I know you yeah. probably experienced a lot of that when you first adjusted to the U.S. and our way of doing things, and then to readjust on a bigger scale. That sounds very challenging, and oh, kind yeah. of brings me to the question of what are the some of the hard versus soft skills in your role? So I think. You know, a lot of them are very apparent. The hard skills, the technical training, your PhD, very specific, and your soft skills, this communication and putting yourself in the other person's shoes. Are there any other things that stand out that you would add to those hard versus soft skills? I think I can go with examples a little bit more. Um, so when I'm when I'm working with people. It is, it is always nice to work with somebody who is a little bit open, mm. open to new ideas, open to questions, open to being criticized. Mm-hmm. And then you see that, I think that's, that's really important. I mean, I, I myself is a little bit uh, also having trouble in that sense. Like 
being like saying that, being open to criticism is mm-hmm. way easier than being open to criticism, you know? Yeah. And when you see that the people who are not, it's it makes it like twice the harder to mm-hmm. work with those people. So I, I would say that's one of the skills that you should have as um as an engineer especially mm-hmm. because you know um there could be always something new there could be always i mean there's a problem right and there are like i don't know hundred solutions to, to the same problem and uh being able to pick the right one or being able to um see the positives and negatives of a solution is really important and being able to look from another another perspective, using other person's perspective is extremely helpful, extremely effective and useful. Yeah. So I would say, you know, like uh, it would be, it, you know, if we could do all that, uh, we would do things much faster, better. Yeah. Uh, you know, you should be able to be like, uh, you should drop the ego a little bit and being able to be open is like one of the really, really important skills that, would help a person, I guess, in, I think in any prof- profession, I would say. I completely agree. I was going to say, I think <laughs> that that's a humbling lesson that many of us can learn. And yeah. just looking from the outside, it seems that engineering and science is a lot of, again, looking for problems and looking to critique things. Does that mental space or does that mindset ever get challenging or just exhausting? It does. It does. Uh, <laughs> so we, my my husband is also an engineer. I'm also an engineer. When we are, you know, having small problems, like not problems, but you know, things to be done around the house, both of us come with like solutions, like yeah. You, for example, I don't know. Somebody's gonna go to the go to IKEA, say, and we are gonna bring stuff from there. You know, we, we don't we wanna uh, we don't want to be delivered. We are planning to bring it back, but we don't have enough space in the car. So what should we do? Should we take two cars or one car? Which solution is better? Which solution is more effective? And we just kind of get into this conversation of like, okay, let's pick the most effective one or and I think the conversation of ego comes in there too. Like both of us think that our solution is better. <laughs> like, okay. And then at the end of the day, you, you kind of feel like we should have done what I said instead of this, uh, you know, like it gets, it gets a little bit overwhelming sometimes, you know, even the small things you kind of try to optimize or solve it effectively. And if it is not effective, you kind of go back and do like a retrospection or we should have done this and that mm. different way so that it would be much better. Yeah. So yeah, sometimes you don't have to, but you kind of, it's a, I think you just start to do it at work all the time. So yeah. it gets into your life, sneaks into your life. Yeah. I think I've heard humans naturally have the negativity bias. Like that's just evolution and why we've survived. But then if you're in that zone all day at work, I can just see it being very challenging to remember like, oh, I'm at home. I, I don't have to be looking for problems all the time. 
I know. Yes, <laughs> definitely. You, you gotta, you gotta sometimes remind yourself. Yeah, that that happens. It's, yeah. I think, very natural. But. What do you love most about your job? Hmm. I guess I would have to say. I mean, I would have to say the satisfaction you get after uh, solving something. Is, is pretty unique. I really like that. So, um, you know, I mentioned like the problems and the being effective, blah, blah, blah. You know, it's kind of, I kind of made it sound like it's a negative thing, mm-hmm. uh, but maybe in your everyday life, and if you, if it becomes a, you know, uh, reason for an argument, that's not very nice. But when you are doing it, the information, your inputs you are collecting all of them and making sense of them and putting something out there that solves that problem and it's complete and it's you know uh in a well put manner mm-hmm. i think that's the that's the, the biggest satisfaction i get out of my job and that's what i love the most to be honest mm-hmm. um yeah so i think that's that's what i like really and i think I mean, there are small, small things, of course, I like about my job. For example, I like the fact that I can just, you know, put on my music and just concentrate on what I'm doing and just be doing that. And I guess it's true for most of the jobs, but I, I like mm-hmm. doing that and that and my job gives me that time mm. uh, being able to do, do that. I like that too. Um, but, you know. Overall, I think solving problems is pretty satisfying and that makes me excited when I go to work and uh, do that, really. Awesome. So from that, is part of your job literally to sit with the program and the software and to try things that you think hackers would try and see what happens? That rarely happens, actually, okay. to be honest. Um, yeah, because I, like I mentioned, there are tools to kind of automatically do that. Okay. We usually um, try to do that. But as a thinking process, like, I mean, we, I'm not really trying those things on the on the software, but I can, uh, if I know how the software works, I can think of ways of being done if, without trying it, you know, I can, mm-hmm. I can see that, hmm, you know, somebody can do such and such attacks and that would end up hurting, you know, some parts of my software. Okay. So, I mean, I do do that as like a mental exercise of what's going to happen. That's kind of like our analysis, mm-hmm. but I rarely do like, okay, you know, this is how would I hack you do but this is a this is a personal thing though like i mean okay. some people love doing that kind of stuff and just like keep doing prototypes of like those attacks etc not everybody i'm i'm not one of those interesting so there's different ways to get to the same endpoint sometimes yes okay when did you decide to go into computer science and computer engineering was did you realize different interest when you were younger that made you get into this or where did it start oh (laughs) so um I have a brother Mm -hmm. and when we were small around the 90s 
95, 96, whatever. Okay, so around that time, uh, I thought my brother is so cool. And my brother thought the computer engineers are so cool. So I ended up being like, okay, like it's, it was inside of my mind. I just kind of, it was there. It got, it got registered like, okay, being a computer engineer is really cool. Being an engineer is really cool. It kind of, you yeah. know, was with me till I was out of the uh, high school and was about to, you know, uh, pick colleges or pick a major for myself. Okay. So I guess that's pretty much it. I mean, it was yeah. <laughs> it's not a very interesting story, but I, you know, but I thought you, you know that was cool. And yeah, he didn't end up doing it. I did it. <laughs> so but, funny. Um, yeah, but that's that's the reason that I start uh, looking into the engineering. I was like, it's good at math. I like the math, and mm-hmm. I want to do something with the math. But I am actually glad. I didn't go for, you know, the uh, for a major in math or like mm-hmm. uh, other you know, sciences. I guess I'm yeah. pretty happy with what I picked. I mean, it worked out and you obviously liked it enough to stick with it over all of the years. And that's also true. Yeah. It's yeah. worked for you. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. You, I guess, like you, you think of quitting Thing. of course like I mean I think maybe six times over six years I you know thought about quitting PhD mm. uh, not not for college I didn't feel that way for college but for PhD I was like okay this is it I, this is this is not for me this is mm. I cannot do this any longer and I, it was just too overwhelming but I don't know somehow you going through with it and seeing yourself at the end is way more rewarding for me than just leaving it as half or something. Yeah. Because I knew this is what I was going to do at the end. You know, I was going to be an engineer. I knew that. So why stop, right? I mean, so somehow I figured it out. (laughs) And now now you look back and you can laugh at it. So, I mean, everything is like that, I guess can laugh at it but when you are going through it it's really hard it's really you know um um hard overwhelming it's you know sometimes burns you out i'm not saying that you know like everybody can just you know push through and make things that make them miserable it's not like that but if you see that if you are feeling that it's gonna be the thing at the end then you should follow it you should you shouldn't you know stop because there are problems in front of you. Mm. There's going to be all these problems. Nothing is, you know, so smooth and easy. Yeah. It's having that big enough why on the other side that gets you through it. So last question for you, Meltem. What is the best piece of career advice you have either received or would offer to others? You just gave us a, a great perspective on getting to the point of accomplishing major goals, but what is some career advice that you would also share and add on to that? I have been thinking this recently since I know that I was going to do the podcast with you. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that there is there are, there are traps that we put ourselves in by 
usually overthinking or doing a negative thinking. And what I would like to say is that putting yourself into a thinking trap is not your friend. So try to get out of it. What I mean is like one of the examples for one of the things, for example, is that like the, the thoughts are not facts. Just because you think of something, it doesn't mean that it is it. Mm-hmm. For example, just because you think that you didn't do a good job on something, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not, not really good enough or that's not a sufficient job. Try to find try to find some reflection, try to find some facts that you can hold on to. You know, ask the person if this job was good enough or, you know, the, the recipient. So that don't put yourself into this negative space, ne- not space, negative place. Yeah. So that um, you can, you know, keep pushing through and not getting into that holes of uh, unhappiness. Yeah. That's that assumption and... Yeah, it's the assumption rather than looking at what's real. Actually, what's, happens, yeah, or asking for the feedback. That's exactly that's really important because I think with all challenges or when you try something new, it doesn't feel comfort. So it's good to not just assume that discomfort is the same as you did something wrong or it's not right. Exactly. Yes. Because you can't easily overthink and you can just uh, upset yourself and maybe for no reason. Yeah. Don't do that. Wow. Be on the positive side is what I'm thinking. So good. So good. Mel Tem, thank you for your time and sharing with us about your super, super cool job. I just, I mean, (laughs) you work with robots. That's pretty cool. (laughs) <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm actually so glad that we had this um, I it was it was great for me I loved it awesome. thank you Kate for giving me the opportunity to be here I'm I loved every minute of it it was so good oh such a pleasure big thank you to Meltem for sharing an inside look at the project you're working on with the robotics company and just your personal journey of adjusting to culture and life in the U.S. as you studied and got your PhD and then went to work for Intel and now the company you're currently at. There is just so much in there that I think can apply to so many different fields and so many different roles. I especially love the closing advice and wisdom that our thoughts are not always facts. Don't get trapped in negative thinking and just kind of look at look at the things that you're thinking about and seeing if they are just a pattern or something that's going to get you snagged up or if it is an actual fact. I think that was a lovely reminder that it's really important to, to keep those thoughts in check. I hope you are doing well. If you enjoyed this one, rate and review, share with a friend. All of those things are very much appreciated. And I will catch you next time on another episode of Defining Rules. Defining Rules.